0: And so beginning in verse 31 says, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and that after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you again for your word, and I thank you for another Sunday where we can be together. Lord, I'm grateful for your challenging text like this one, because it doesn't only reveal what it takes for us to pursue you in faith, in faith and faithfully. But it also reveals your love for us that you do not uh, uh, forsake to give us uh, what we need, even though it may be difficult for us to hear or even difficult for us to embrace and, and, and engage and, and actually live out. And so this morning, as we talk about something as difficult as suffering, suffering for the sake of something as good and holy as as your name, as righteousness, I pray, Father, that we would see above all the value and benefit in embracing and leaning in to this suffering. To the glory of your name and to the best of what you have for us in this life and the life to come. We ask all this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen and amen. And so, friends, our passage begins with Jesus telling his disciples plainly, right, clearly, without any cryptic or symbolic language, that he's going to suffer and die. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders. And therefore, and thereby, by them, he will be killed. But when Peter Here's this. Peter pulls Jesus aside and he has a little talk with him. Right. Now, I know that historically people have been really hard on Peter for what Peter says next. But before we get to what he says, I'd like to take a second to just say, say that I feel for Peter. I do. Right. Remember that Peter left everything to follow Jesus, when Jesus called him all the way back in Mark chapter one, I believe it was. Peter has been faithful to Jesus. And what's more, Peter really does love Jesus. Jesus is his rabbi, which means his his teacher or his mentor, as well as his dearest friend. Peter cares a lot, a great deal about Jesus. Also, Peter is a Jew, Right. A Jew who believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah or savior of the Jews and no good Jew of Peter's day would ever believe, would never enter their mind that the Messiah would die at the hands of mere mortal human beings. So considering all of this, Peter pulls Jesus aside as if to, speak to, as if to speak some sense into his dear friend. And he rebukes Jesus for saying these things. But here's an interesting thing. When Jesus hears Peter's rebuke, right, he doesn't say anything directly to Peter first. Instead, Jesus turns from Peter and he looks at his disciples And I believe that Jesus turns to look at his disciples because in that moment, his greatest concern was for how Peter's words were influencing them. As I said earlier, avoiding and rejecting suffering is extremely attractive, right? And I imagine that when Peter rebukes Jesus, it was not as much a rejection of him, of Jesus himself, as it was a rejection of the suffering that he was foretelling or predicting. And I can imagine that after hearing Jesus' words, the disciples themselves, who stood by, probably longed for some comfort, right? They probably longed and hoped that what Jesus was saying wasn't true, right? In their hearts, in their minds, they were probably saying, say it ain't so, Jesus, right? This is not true. And Peter's words would have been extremely comforting to them in that regard. When they hear Jesus, when they hear Peter rebuke Jesus, they could breathe a sigh of relief. They could relax because Peter recognized and called out exactly what they hoped was true about that very moment, that Jesus was just losing it, right? That Jesus just didn't know what he was talking about. You can imagine they're saying, man, we're glad that Peter is here to set Jesus straight. The problem with them thinking that, though, is that this is exactly what the religious leaders who opposed Jesus ultimately crucified him for. For thinking he was out of his mind, for thinking that he was downright wrong for what he believed and what he said about himself. And so Jesus couldn't have his disciples falling into such lies, right? Plus, plus, Jesus' suffering was suffering for the kingdom, right? Jesus' suffering meant redemption for humanity. Jesus' death was for the forgiveness of sins and for reconciling God and reconciling man to God. Jesus' suffering was about restoring mankind's greatest loss, a harmonious relationship with God. The Father. And Jesus couldn't risk this being undermined. Jesus could not risk these men, these men who he'd chosen to turn the world upside down with the gift of his amazing redemption. He could not risk them succumbing to these lies, to these lying yet comforting words. And so Jesus turns back to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, Peter has not just become Satan. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But the impact of his words are so contrary, so opposite and so potentially damaging, so disastrous, so harmful to Jesus' work of redemption that they parallel the work of Satan, the enemy. Peter's words, if believed in that moment, served to further Satan's agenda of undermining and ultimately undoing Jesus' work of redemption. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus will have none of it because Jesus knows that his suffering is the only way for broken people to be reunited with a holy God. Jesus' suffering bridges the gap between a holy God and a broken world. And so Jesus goes on to tell the disciples that suffering... The kind of suffering that he's going to experience and the kind of suffering that those who follow him will experience is the result of the Christ follower pursuing a holy God in this broken world. Now, understand, Jesus is not about people just being in pain for the sake of pain, right? I feel like sometimes people talk about Jesus' commands here as if if God is a drill sergeant or a boot camp instructor, right? Like, like he's just wanting us to, to embrace and, and pursue pain because it makes him feel good or something like that. Or, or like he's some kind of killjoy, you know, and, and following him means to reject anything that would make us feel good. I've heard people uh, uh, define uh, in a similar way, define healthy eating as if it tastes good, spit it out, because if it tastes good to you, then it ain't good for you. And often this is how we view Christianity, right? If it feels good, if it seems good to you, then reject it. It can't be godly. It can't be the thing that that God has for you. But the reason why things seem this way is because we are broken ourselves and we live in this broken world. And so to use this healthy, this healthy eating illustration again, the reason why food that tastes good to us is often so, is so often the food that is bad for us is because our bodies have been trained to appreciate and crave what is bad while rejecting what's good. And in the same way, God and his holiness are so hard for us. Because in our brokenness and in this broken world we live in, we're naturally drawn to what is bad for us. And what is bad for us is a lot easier to get to. And Jesus understands this. And so the question is what will it take for Jesus' followers to reject brokenness, to reject sin, to reject what isn't good for them, what, to what isn't good for us, in pursuit of wholeness and holiness? And the best that God has for us. Well, the first point is this. They'll have to embrace suffering. (laughs) Excuse me. They will have to embrace the pain of going against the grain of their own broken desires and the broken world they live in in order to pursue him. Jesus puts it this way in verse 34. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And Jesus says this so long before he's actually crucified on the cross. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the disciples had little to no idea what Jesus was talking about. Remember, Jews did not have a frame of reference for a Messiah who suffers, much less a death as shameful as one on a cross. But it wasn't until they saw Jesus carrying his own cross out of the city and up the hill to Golgotha that this made any sense to them. I believe that when they saw this, it hit them like a ton of bricks, right? That Jesus called for each of them to take up their own cross was the call to self-denial. Jesus was calling them to forsake their own desires of self-preservation and comfort in order to embrace the suffering that comes from loving God's holiness in a broken world. As the writer David E. Garland puts it, he says, Jesus expects the disciples to be willing to join the ranks of the despised and doomed. They must be ready to deny themselves even to the point of giving their lives. You see, Jesus' suffering was the result, the direct result of him choosing God's way above any other way. And brothers and sisters, when we choose to follow Jesus, we should expect the same to some degree or another. We should, we should expect that when we embrace suffering, when we, when we should expect and we should embrace suffering when we pursue justice in a broken world, a world that does not love justice. We should embrace the suffering that we invite as we pursue a biblical sexual ethic in a culture that rejects God's perspective on his very gifts of sex and sexuality. We should embrace suffering when we come up against it in our pursuit of God and his holiness. But with all that said, it's important brothers and sisters, that like Jesus, we suffer with humility. Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus suffered in such a way that he gave no reason to believe the accusations of those who doubted his character. And this is where I think we fall short as Christians sometimes. The way we respond to the world and our culture when they don't receive us because of our biblical views and convictions often gives others a good reason not to receive us. Right. The ways we speak to and about those who hold views that are different from our own reveals that maybe it's not about Christ at all. It reveals that it's really about us making ourselves look good. It's about making sure that people know that we're not dumb. Right. It's about making sure that people know that we're not pushovers. Or maybe we just want to make sure that everyone knows that that we're right in their Wrong, right? And in these instances, we are again called to take up our own crosses and to deny ourselves, and uh, not deny ourselves the pleasure of self justification, of retribution. We must suffer in such a way that it leaves little doubt that our suffering is for the sake of our holy God and not for our own sins and insecurities. As the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter three fifteen through 17, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so here's the thing. Why do we embrace suffering? Why do we embrace suffering for doing good? What is the benefit of suffering for pursuing God in this broken world? Well, and the second point is this. Jesus goes on to say that rejecting suffering for his name's sake is a rejection of eternal life. Verse 35 reads, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I love to flip that and put put it in the positive. Embraced in suffering for his name's sake is to embrace eternal life, right? I remember when I was in high school and I was really trying to live to please the Lord in high school and and it was tough because it was in a setting where there were very few other kids in school who wanted to or at church who 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 wanted to live to please the Lord and and, and I longed for a few friends who were living for the Lord. And I did find a couple friends, but I remember on one occasion, one of those friends they just confessed to me that although they really wanted to please the Lord, they really, really just wanted to fit in in school, which which led to a lot of a lot of the poor choices they'd been making. And and I always remember this story because I think it represents uh, uh, what's fairly common for all of us at times as it pertains to our discipleship or or formation or our walk with Jesus. You know, we all come across things in our lives that cause us to to negotiate, right? We negotiate the value of pursuing Christ over against the cost of lesser things that, that may grant us some level of comfort and pleasure in the moment, right? In other words, there are times in our lives where we choose to reject the suffering that affords us eternal life in Christ for the momentary pleasures that may cost us that life. And so for this reason, Jesus encourages us to count the cost. In verse 36, he asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And friends, the answers are very simple. It's no good to gain the whole world and lose your soul. And there's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. Because nothing is as valuable. Yet people are forfeiting their souls every day for lesser things. Lesser things like money or fame or sex or leisure or whatever it is you can name. But God has so much better for us than what this broken world can offer. God has healthier and deeper relationships for us. He has that deep peace of contentment and trust in him when we lean on him. He has the blessings of a clear conscience and of holy desires, freedom from shame and guilt, a new identity that is grounded in his unmoving goodness and love. He has for us eternal life, living forever with God, our father in eternity. But brothers and sisters, none of this comes without us embracing suffering. The kind of suffering that comes from daring to love Jesus in a world that just doesn't care for him all that much. And brothers and sisters, the truth is that this is our third and final point. A rejection of suffering, this kind of suffering, the kind that comes from daring to love Jesus in a world that does not love him. Is a rejection of Christ himself. In verse 38, Jesus says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Notice that Jesus acknowledges the brokenness of our world, right? He says that this is an adulterous and sinful generation. In other words, one that does not love our God nor his holiness. And Jesus understands that the disciples will be tempted to be ashamed for their suffering, especially once Jesus is crucified. Think about it, friends. Think about it. They followed Jesus for three whole years, left everything and followed him. And all along as they followed him, the very religious leaders who opposed him, the ones who were saying that he wasn't who he said he was, that he was out of his mind, that he was blaspheming. These very ones, all the while, while the disciples believed Jesus and walked with him and never gave in to the naysayers, never believed what others were saying about him. These very naysayers and the ones who hated Jesus, they get him. They get Jesus. This figure who they've known to be larger than life, this Jesus who's more powerful than anyone they've ever known, he's captured By these mere mortals, these mere men, these naysayers, and he's killed. It makes sense from their perspective that the disciples will start to second guess things, right? Maybe he wasn't who he said he was. How could we have been so stupid? Maybe we just need to get back to regular life. Maybe we just need to go along to get along with the rest of society. While understanding this temptation and understanding this potential danger for the disciples, Jesus gives the disciples a stark reminder. A stark reminder in order to communicate that his death will not be the end. That his death is not the end. With strong language, Jesus tells his disciples that he will return. The religious leaders and the naysayers have not won. He will return in all the glorious splendor of God surrounded by the angels of heaven. And if anyone chooses shame over that glory, they will miss out big time. As the writer David Garland puts it again, he says, to win the favor of the world and its rulers means to lose the favor of heaven to win the favor of heaven however means to lose the favor of this world i believe this is a slide clay and redeemer i know our church Okay, I know and I'm honored to say that I serve at a church that I believe is ready to storm the gates of hell with water pistols at a moment's notice. I've seen you just embrace discomfort. I've seen you reject notoriety. I've experienced your pain as you stood up for truth and justice, even though family members and friends won't talk to you anymore and organizations won't partner with you anymore. And donors don't want to give to your organizations anymore and members don't want to. Stay at our church anymore. But friends, hear Jesus say this morning that these are very small prices to pay so that when Jesus returns, we hear Him say, Hey, you see that one who is not ashamed of me? Yes, Him. He's with me. And you see that person over there who who wasn't ashamed of me? Yes, she is mine. She is with me. And you see that church right there? Yes, that church. They are with me. Now, who got a problem with that? Friends, whatever shame or suffering we must endure in this broken world cannot compare with the glory that awaits us in heaven. So don't give up. Don't give up, friends. Because it's going to get harder. It's going to get Harder. The pressure to compromise will grow greater. But Jesus has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised that those of us who persevere to the end shall be saved. So hold on. Hold on, brothers and sisters. Persevere through the pain of rejection and embrace the suffering. Of your cross, and in the end, let's e- let's enjoy eternity in glory, Amen, and Amen. Let's pray together, friends. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that you would take these words sown in our heart. And increase in us, a resolve, an encouragement, an inspiration. Father, to lean into whatever this world may throw at us because we love you. And in the end, to stand as a testimony, living testimonies of the goodness of our God in our broken, sinful world. As we seek to continue to love in this world. To break the kingdom of heaven into this world. To move along with you as you are in this world, redeeming and renewing and and bringing your kingdom down. Lord God, help us to persevere. Lord, we love and we thank you this day. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.